purpose and vocation are two ideas that I've been thinking about a lot lately. Finding a sense of purpose was one of my great hopes in making like a prayer. When thinking about how to live a life aligned with deep purpose, I think of Annie Ross. Annie is a program director at the International Council of Swedish Industry, focusing on environmental infrastructure in developing countries. She's also a board member of Reformistina, the Reformists, the largest social democratic organization in Sweden. Most recently, Annie co-authored En Grön Nyjev for A Green New Deal for Sweden, which is a bold reform program for Sweden's climate transition. Luckily for me, she's also the sister of my fiancé. Today, we discuss purpose, the politics of self-care, and our collective relationship to nature. Here's Annie starting that conversation, speaking about the importance of storytelling. I think that we need a new story about our society and about ourselves because I think that we have been a little bit lost um, when we're just on our own because we are a social creature and and we're so reliant on each other and still we have been told that you know life is something you should do on your own which is really not true and I am also really inspired by the indigenous peoples in Sweden the Sapmi people their view of of nature and their role in it they see their purpose in life is to forward earth to the next generation as they found it and i in our lives you know in our especially in sweden which is an, a mostly an atheist country the individual choice to live your own life can be a very positive thing but it can also be something that leaves you empty of purpose and of of community I think that we really need to have a new story where we're putting those values in focus and thinking more, seeing more ourselves as part of a whole, both part of whole of, of human society and also nature. I would like for us to talk about these things also in politics in a more spiritual way, because I think that that is also lacking, that people want to feel that kind of community, kind of purpose, like connection to nature, but I'm still to write that kind of story. I'm trying to figure it out, like how, how to tell it. And I think our, our report is a first start, but I think that there's much more to, to do that. Uh, maybe more of these kind of conversations that you and I are having here is just a way to like evolve that together. I think that's a perfect way for us to start our conversation because I'd love to start with your work with the reformists. Can you tell us a little bit about what that group is and what you've been doing? Yes, sure. Uh, the reformists, Reformisterna in Swedish, we're a, a social democratic uh, organization. So we're part of the Social Democratic Party. But it's a, a group that has been formed to push the Social Democratic Party to the left again, uh, both in terms of proposing more reforms for economic equality, but also to really push for progressive climate change policies. So I've been working a lot with um, 
writing this report, uh, a green new deal in Grön och Giv um, for Sweden. And it's a, a really big package that we're trying now to promote to the Social Democrat Party that they're going to take that on in Congress that's meeting in November and then to put that on the on the voting ballot uh, in the election 2022. And I've heard you say that if this is taken up on the ballot, this would be one of the most progressive climate policies of, of any government in the world. Is that correct? Yeah, that's correct. And that's why I, I'm so excited about this report because um, it's, of course, it's inspired by the approach that is taken in the, the Green New Deal that's proposed by uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and other uh, progressive Democrats in the US. Um, but it is a Swedish, it has a Swedish focus and it's adapted to the Swedish uh, society and economy. And we have gone further than anyone has, else has, even the, the, the Democrats in the US, in actually doing a full-on analysis of the whole economy, proposing exactly what kind of reforms that are needing, needed. Uh, we have calculated the emissions and we have made a financial plan for all the costs. I'm also curious about your work that you're doing in the sort of international development aspects of climate, because you just came back from Uganda and I think really soon you're on your way to Bangladesh. How would you describe the work that you're doing there? Yeah, so so um, what I described before is what I do on my free time. <laughs> and trying to push Sweden's climate transition. And in my, in my uh, regular uh, day job, I work with climate transition in developing countries. Um, I work for the International Council of Swedish Industry, Nærings-Livet Internationale Råd in Swedish. And uh, we support uh, sustainable development in, in developing countries. And... What I do is that I work with providing capacity development to infrastructure products, sustainable infrastructure products, for example, investments in renewable energy, energy efficiency, uh, biogas, public transport, railways that are very much needed in, in developing countries. So I work right now yeah, in Uganda, Zambia, Tanzania, Bangladesh, Colombia, Laos, uh, with various different um, infrastructure projects that we're supporting them with. There's so much there to unpack. It's so fascinating. And I love the, the dichotomy you set up there of what you're doing in your professional life and your personal free time and how much that aligns with your sense of purpose that you have moving through the world and it's so clearly a deep sense of purpose around these issues that I really admire um, but I think it'd be really interesting to talk about that balance between personal and professional and I've been thinking a lot about self-care in the way that it was originally proposed and originally meant which was more as a political act of taking care of the self so that you have the capacity and the resilience to be able to advance the change that you want to see in the world and seeing the self-care as a tool for change which keeping in mind that we're both white heterosexual women so <laughs> there's a lot of issues there that we can't speak to for other communities that are marginalized but I think in the context of climate change there's a lot to be said 
because I think self-care is sold to us as a consumer product <laughs> a lot of the time or an excuse to, um, to not participate in sort of the, like an excuse to disengage from issues. But I would love to know about the practices and rituals that you have that allow you to be able to go and live this purpose-fueled life. How do you recharge? Mm. Yeah, first I would just like to comment on that, the first thing that you said, because there's so many, I think that's so extremely interesting looking at self-care from a political perspective, because um, very often it's so individualized. You know, it's about taking care of yourself, you know, putting yourself first. <laughs> and I'm not against that, but I think that for me, I think that it's also a lot of things that are forgotten there, which is, you know, that you feel good. I feel really good about, I, I love my life because I feel so purpose, filled of purpose for what, what I do. And that makes me really happy. Like that makes me wake up and want to go to work every day. And it also makes me really feel good about myself because I feel proud about what I do. And like you said, I also feel this alignment in my life. Um, and I think that that's very often lost out on when you talk about self-care and it's very often it becomes about uh, different health products or meditation. And I do a lot of that as well. I'll come to that in a, in a minute. But I think that, um, you know, if you don't like your work or if you're feeling like I'm not aligned with what I do, is not really aligned with my values. I don't think that you're going to be able to sort of meditate that way or consume that away by going to a spa. Maybe you, you sort of can, but it will come back to you come continuously. And I also think that you're losing out on, on the bigger picture of seeing yourself, what you're doing, how that's impacting other people. Um, and that is something that I think even though if you're not very conscious about it, it's something that is always going to be there. Um, so for me, that is a way of maybe unintentional self-care that by caring for others and not just, you know, thinking about my own, my own life and my own, own well-being, I actually feel very happy and content. And I think that that's an insight that has been lost in, in our current society. To a large extent that you know living in harmony with others make you feel better yourself um so i think that that's a really big way of that i feel very happy even though i'm very busy i also feel very happy when i do the work that i do um but a few strategies that i have i would say first first of all for me structure is really important uh, i have a very structured to-do list or way of doing to-do lists so that I don't feel overwhelmed um, because there's so many things that I would want to do and that I have to do. And that's, so I do, I have to sort of break it up. So I have a, a to-do list where I split up uh, what I have to do today, what I have to do this week, what I have to do this month, and then like the whole year or just long-term. Uh, and then I just move things up and down on that list. And that means that the things that I have to really have to do today, that's the things that I put on my today's to-do list. And then I can have the other things. This is, that's for the rest of the week. And in that way, I can, you know, check off the things of my list and then feel good about that I have 
done the things that I needed to do today. Otherwise, it's been easy to always feel like there's so many things I have to do. And if you're not prioritizing it right, you might feel stressed all the time. <laughs> um, so I, usually, I think you have to be, you have to compartmentalize. Um, and then the other thing that I, I try to remind myself constantly as well, because I, I have a big need as well for um, my personal space to, to recharge. And um, I think that sometimes it's also easy to become very ambitious about self-care, feeling like everything always have to be perfect, always have to be in harmony. And what I realized is that it's more important that you can actually recharge a lot by having these small spaces for recharging throughout the day. And that's really like, it, it, it makes a really, really big difference. You can come back to yourself it's enough with just meditating for five minutes, take like a 20 minute break, go away from your computer, put on some tea, meditate, and then come back. And it makes the whole difference instead of feeling it's almost the same as with workout, like you have to do the full on thing. No, you don't. And I think that for me, that's really a, a life changer as well, that I don't have to feel like I have to have a whole day of self-care to like come back to myself, even though I love to have that I also realized that it's really, it goes a long way to just take small moments. So when you take five minutes to meditate, what would that look like? Do you have a particular practice that you come back to? Yeah, I do. Um, as you know, I lived in India for several years, so I spent a lot of time there uh, learning meditation methods and, and yoga. Um, so very often I just do um a few asanas so like yoga postures that just stretches the body and then I often I lay down in savasana or I just sit with my legs crossed and I meditate and when I meditate I usually I just count my breath that's my way of meditating there are many different ways but that's my way so I just count one to six to like keep my uh, breathing uh, in control and uh, yeah, then I might lay down in Savasana if I didn't do that before and just relax. And that's it. I'd love to pick up on your experiences in India because I know that you studied and you worked there as well as in Shanghai too, which are both, I would guess, and you were living in New Delhi, fairly chaotic places to live. Is that where you first developed your yoga practice and your meditation practice? Yes, when I, it was when I studied in India, in Hyderabad, so in south of India. I moved there to, to do my final year in my, or half a year in my bachelor's. Um, and that's when I studied yoga at university, actually. And then on campus, they had um, morning and evening yoga and meditation practice that I would go to. And that's when I really started it seriously, I think. And then, and that was in 2013. So yeah, that's eight years ago. <laughs> and then um, when you went back to work in India, were you able to deepen that practice? Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's the good thing with when I lived in India and I, like when we had that, uh, those uh, sessions on campus, I really got into the habit of doing it every day. Um, which I, I'm really grateful and I think that's why it stuck with me that I kept coming back for it um, and then when I moved back to India 
I went to several yoga retreats. There's so many all over in Europe, but I did that to, to also deepen my practice. Um, but I think that it was also really good for me to live in India because it also took sort of a lot of that exotization of yoga away. And uh, I think that there's so many, um, I don't know, in, in, in the West, people who or people who come to India who don't live there, who see yoga as something exotic, as, you know, this gateway to spirituality. And speaking again of, of the political side of, of spirituality, you know, yoga started as a sacred practice that would only be practiced by Brahmins, so the highest caste, and only by men. So no other people were allowed to, to practice yoga. And, uh, and then it's also, of course, now during the uh, 20th century, it's become a really big industry as well. Um, so I think that it was good for me to see that from an Indian perspective. And in India, it's very much, it's much more focused on the meditation and like harmony than on the, you know, being super fit. And that, that's really not the way. And I loved it when I went to yoga practices in India. And, you know, there's these older women there. They can't do the asanas, but they like they do what they can. And they participate in the training more as a sort of a, a, a community thing that people do it together. And I really enjoyed that. I would wish, wish that we have more of that here, here in Sweden, like that it's a way for people to come together, to just sit together and, and meditate together. It's really... Uh, beautiful and to do that I don't know maybe we also with people who are not always just like like you and me for example <laughs> um but like to be able to do that with people from different ethnic backgrounds from different economic groups with different ages and uh, I think that it definitely creates this bond um that I really yeah and I, that brought another side of yoga practice to to me in India I'm so glad that you touched on that. I think I remember discussing this with you when I had visa issues and had to leave Sweden and we came to live with you for about a month in New Delhi. You very generously opened up your house and it was so lovely. And I remember hearing these ideas from you then, which I hadn't thought about before. And it's really, it's really colored a lot of my practice since then and the way, I, the way that I think about it. Um, I'm curious about after India, you moved back to Stockholm and I'm wondering what do you most appreciate about living in Stockholm now that you're, now that you've been there for a couple of years? I think two things. Um, first of all, my friends group, definitely, who is uh, you know they're my they're my biggest uh, comfort and uh, my go-to people here in Stockholm since my family doesn't doesn't live here um so that is uh, something that I appreciate so much coming back from when you live abroad you miss out on a lot even though if you can stay in touch and um, as you should know <laughs> um and I really miss that I was really happy when I moved back here and I can follow and their lives closer and, and have that kind of connection um, and then the other thing that I really appreciate is of course that it's such a it's a such, you can live such a healthy life here the air is 
clean. <laughs> the water is clean. You know, you can, I can go down and swim in the ocean here in Stockholm, just next to my apartment. It's a lot of green. And that was something that I, after living in, in both in Shanghai and then in New Delhi, where, you know, the, the air quality is really, really poor. You can't work out outside. You can't drink the tap water. You can't, you know, you know, go for a run in the park. Uh, so I really, after having gone through that, I really, really appreciate that. And I think that's also strengthened my commitment to to um, working with climate and environmental politics to protect nature. And because I think that it's not until you live with that that you understand how big that loss actually is. Um, and then I think that that's also what I've, speaking about health you know, self-care that eventually it felt like it was really hard for me in india to to actually care for myself um in that kind of environment um because and that's the thing which i think a lot of rich people in india that even if you have all the resources it doesn't help you if you can't go you know you still you're still stuck in traffic for hours you can't do anything about that you're still stuck with the horrible air, then you're going to have to, you know, be stuck in your apartment all the time with air purifiers. You can't drink the tap water. There's no way of getting that around that fact. I remember when I when I lived in Hyderabad, and and then uh, there was a electricity a blackout. Yeah, the um, air conditioner, of course, stopped working for hours. And we didn't have any water. We were waiting for our water delivery guy to come because you can't drink the tap water. And we were just laying there on the bed trying to like not, <laughs> not use any extra energy, not getting too hot, not like needing to drink more water than we had. And it was a very stressful experience of, you know, feeling that, you know, there's nothing I can, I can do about this. And I think that that's, it's very scary. Yeah, it is. And it's something I think about a lot with when it comes to environmental consciousness is we often see ourselves as separate from nature. In the work you do, I imagine, it's a lot about showing people that we are interconnected with nature. What do you do to ground yourself back into that? Where do you feel most connected to nature? I love to swim. Um... As I said, I live just next to water here in Stockholm. So um, I mean, thinking now, now that it's May, I'm going to start to hopefully swim every morning. It's still very cold in the water, but as a Swede, I, I kind of like that. So I try to swim every day and that really grounds me. I love being in, in the water. Um, and then I also really like to take long walks and like run in the forest, um, which is also really a privilege when you live in a big city. And I would want more of that in Stockholm and in other cities globally as well, going back more to, you know, uh, rewilding. There's a lot of talk about rewilding. Mm, I haven't heard of rewilding. What, what does it mean? Well, um, basically what it sounds like, like trying to rewild, you know, growing your own food and having more trees and nature, access to water. Um, so basically like, yeah, rewilding urban, urban spaces. Um, and I really like that idea because I think that nature is, it's also one of the best ways to reconnect with yourself. Just being in nature always 
for me at least it always just makes me really really calm um so i think that that's also a really good way to improve people's mental um and physical health a hundred percent something that i think could be interesting to talk about is what advice would you give to people who are looking for a sense of purpose where do you think you could start i think that people sort of know <laughs> deep within i think that there's because you know people you you recognize that feeling in yourself when you're feeling passion or when you're feeling want you're feeling excitement um so i don't think that the that that is the issue i think it's more than the question of having the courage to follow that um and daring to to go where you're feeling that your heart wants to wants to go whether that's education climate change democracy equal rights or you know healthcare there can be so many so many things um and i also think that um, sometimes people might focus too much on what their skills are rather than what their passions are i spoke to one friend the other day who she's also really passionate about climate change but she works with um uh, with computers and there's nothing wrong with that she's it's just that she's very skilled with mathematics she's really smart and i think that that's why she always saw herself as that she should be an engineer or she should work with that kind of, with with mathematics in some ways um and i asked her why haven't you thought of how you can apply that for climate change there's so many ways that you could you know make use of your skills for something that you feel passionate about um and so i think that it's more about trying to look at how you can put your skills to use in a way that feels that feels purposeful for you rather than mainly going on oh i'm good at mathematics then i have to be an engineer no you don't have to follow that that kind of path um, so i think it's more of opening up and thinking of how to, how you can be of service with the skills that you have been given and putting them to a use that you really feel feel passionate about i think that's when you're going to hit the the jackpot what you said about courage really hit home for me i think that's a truth and it can be a truth that's hard to hear sometimes for you was these issues around the climate and the environment um was that what was driving you early on in your career or is it something that you came across as you worked more i think that's something that has sort of grew over the years um and I, I i definitely i want to say as well like it's easy to say like to to be courageous but there's definitely been points in my career when i have felt doubts and i have been really like i wouldn't say scared but i have really felt like okay i'm i'm going to take the plunger this is i'm going to take a risk um and i have been hesitant about it um and my parents did not want me to <laughs> to take this route they wanted me to go into um um into healthcare which is funny because my brother has done that but they i think that they wanted a more stable uh, um and clear career path for me and that's understandable and that you sort of want to see where is this going and um i started studying humanities in high school because i'm i always been really passionate about uh, society societal issues 
Um, so I just, I always knew that I wanted to work with the big picture um, and with um, societal problems. But then I think that it started more and more when I studied at university and I studied development studies. And then I, when I lived in India for the first time, and I really started to see the, you know, in India, you can already see the impacts that climate change has on people's lives. Um, and like I said, it's really scary when it, it really hits home when you see it for real. Um, just the thought of being exposed to drought for a long time is very stressful. Um, and to see how, for example, old people die from heat because they can't afford air conditioning. And I think that that's when I really felt that this is something that cuts through all other issues in a way that sort of, I don't know, made me feel like this is what I have to, this is what I have to do. And uh, after that, from that point, it's just grown and grown and grown, <laughs> I think. I guess that, that those feelings are stronger than the, um, the doubt and the fear that I sometimes also feel like, am I wasting my time? Should I really be doing this? Yeah. So I'm sure it's worth it, even though, of course, I also know that I'm giving up certain other things. I could have a more secure path, but I also don't think that it would give me as back as much as, as this path does. The work that you do, particularly, I think, with the issue of climate change. I've had friends who have been really engaged in that kind of activism in groups like Extinction Rebellion and groups that are doing some really great work. Um, but they've come away with a sense of real anxiety and a really a dark view of humanity and our future that is perhaps accurate. But I'm wondering when you work in this full time, like you do, and then also spend your personal time in this work. What do you have at faith then? What keeps you going? Good question. Mm. I think that that is why I, I do this work because it's the only way for me to not feel anxiety. Because when I put myself to work and try to you know work out solutions, for example, writing this this political program now pushing for it to get on the you know the on the ballot and supporting these infrastructure projects and at least I can see concrete change that I'm contributing to and I think that that's my way <laughs> I'm a very like problem solving person that's my way of of um, of uh, coping with that kind of stress. I think that maybe that's why I feel like I have to do these things because if I don't, I would just be obsessing about like, why is nobody doing anything? Um, so, uh, but it is, of course, I think there's always a balance as well of how much you can take in uh, because I also have to stay updated on a lot of negative news, you know, taking in a lot of, of stressful data and uh, sometimes I have to, like, I can't take everything in. I have to sort of prioritize and do as much as you, as you can. Uh, and then I think also being part of the reformists, I think what it also gives me a lot of comfort because there I see so many people who are working for a good cause 
and we're also very solution oriented. I think sometimes maybe if you work, uh, I really applaud a lot, a lot of the work that, for example, Extinction Rebellion and other environmentalist groups do. But I also think that it can also be stressful because then you are working from the outside of politics. You're having sort of a different approach and a different role that I think for me wouldn't work because I want to be part of working on the, you know, on the political solution, being in the in the room where the decisions are made. That's why I, I opted for this route. That reminds me of something I've heard you talk really eloquently about before, which is kind of how much role personal responsibility takes in the climate crisis versus political responsibility and institutional responsibility. And I think in our current capitalist environment, we're often limited to consumer choices, or at least told that we are, of that we should be buying the right kind of straws and uh, the right kind of fashion and flying less. But something that I imagine you see in your work is the decisions that are being made in the room. How do you think that balance plays out, both for you and how you live your life, but also on a more societal level? I think that's a, a really good point because that's also one of my main criticism of a lot of environmental activists put a lot of pressure on the individual, that the individual that isn't the individual's responsibility. Um, there's a really good saying that you can only take responsibility for what you actually have power to change. Um, you know, you can't take responsibility for something that you can't take responsibility for. But uh, I think that there's been, over the past decades, there's been this liberal political mindset that the individuals should take responsibility, that it's up to the market to provide the individual with products or the choices that they want and if the market where people don't it's up then it's up to us to to just ask for those solutions but it's not that easy and climate change is not an individual responsibility it's a systemic fault (laughs) and so we have to change that on a systemic level and you can't do that on your own so we have to work together and that's why for me that's the only route that you have to do that politically you have to do that through systemic change and it's politics and political parties governments that has the responsibility they are the ones who have the power over these and these processes these changes that we need to make so we have to put responsibility back where it's due where accountability actually lies Thank you for listening to Like a Prayer with me, Alexandra Lemke, and our guest, Annie Ross. You can find more information about a Green New Deal for Sweden in the links in the show notes, and I'll see you next Monday.